This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. November 11th, 2018, in a few days, is a pretty significant historical anniversary. It's the 100th anniversary of the armistice, the ceasefire that ended World War I. Oh, yeah. So, to commemorate that day, I have a World War I story for you. Hey. It's a story of adventure and heroics, and most of all, a story of grit. Mmm. It's the story of Maud Fitch, a cowgirl and a mine owner's daughter from the middle of nowhere in the Wild West. She, ba- she lived in the desert between Nevada and Utah. I mean, it's still the middle of nowhere today. But when the U.S. joined World War I, she wanted to do something to help. So, she bought an ambulance, (laughs) she disassembled it, she shipped it to France with a six-month supply of oil and fuel, and sailed there herself where she reassembled it (laughs) and drove it around the Western Front all by herself. Okay, wait. Wait. (laughs) Wait a minute. She bought an ambulance. Yes. And... Shipped it, shipped it to France. To France. <laughs> and all... The- <laughs> Put it back together. Wow. Drove it around, saving people. Just on her own. Yep. <laughs> wow. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Okay, so Maud Fitch, like so many others who endured the unprecedented horrors of World War I, is completely unknown today. She's buried in the tiny town of Eureka, Utah. Her story was unearthed and brought to us by Valerie Jacobson, who's a historian working as part of the National World War I Commission. Hi, I am Valerie Jacobson. I work with the World War I Commission. I am the project manager. One of her tasks was to create a lesson plan for elementary and junior high teachers to teach about World War I. And they already had sources for the classic soldiers narrative, but she wanted to add a woman's experience as well. Yeah. The story is truly amazing, and it helps broaden our picture of the experience of World War I. Cool. So Maud Fitch was born in the late 1800s. We can't actually say for sure when, (laughs) Because Valerie Jacobson has found three different dates for her birth (laughs) that range um, over the period of like 12 years. Wow. So we kind of, we know she's born in the late 1800s. Maud Fitch was actually born in Michigan. Her father was born in England and her mom was born in New York. And her father was the owner of the chief consolidated mining company. And she has the classic Wild West kind of life. You know, there's photos of her on horses. She considered herself a cowgirl. But she's also the mine owner's daughter, not Mm. a miner's daughter. Right. So she has money. But interestingly, she doesn't identify with wealth. She calls herself a PIC. She called herself a PIC. Poor Irish Catholic. But that's how she identified herself. So she's like this. Poor Irish Catholic who's come across a bunch of money by being a mine owner's daughter. So when America declared war in 1917, she wanted to help. 
She wanted to do something for the war. And because her father was wealthy, she had the ability to draw at his purse strings, so to speak. The sense I get of her is she's really seeking adventure. She wants to get out in the world and have that grand adventure, but she can't just join the army like all the young men can. So as it turned out, a strange new opportunity was available for women that wasn't just nursing for the Red Cross, driving ambulances. But cars were a really new thing at the time, if you think about it, 1917. They'd only been around for a while, and it certainly wasn't a woman's place. The Red Cross and the army would never employ women as drivers. But somehow women who wanted to do that found a loophole in that nobody would stop them if they paid for their own ambulance and shipped it themselves to the front and then funded the entire thing themselves and drove it around without payment, then they could do it. If you were a female ambulance driver, you had to bring your own ambulance. They didn't want the women to be a drain on any of the resources that were there. So she had to buy her own ambulance. She had to pay to ship it. She also paid upfront in advance for six months worth of gas and oil for her truck. All of the American women have come on their own dime. Don't get me started. (laughs) It, It is kind of annoying because they also made her pay an extra amount to cover her room and board because apparently the people in charge thought that women would be a drain on any of the resources that were still available. The women who wanted to go but didn't have the means, they would join the Red Cross societies in their areas and they would knit socks or wrap bandages. They would prepare things to ship over to the soldiers. So she buys an ambulance. She has automobile skills. She has acquired them somehow. She knows how to drive, but not just drive. She must know how to actually maintain a truck. So she ships off the ambulance and the oil and gas, and off she goes. Now, we know her whole story because she wrote letters back to her family. She wrote all the time back to her family. She tried to write every couple of days. And she wrote mostly to her mother and asked her mother to share. But she would also write to her father. And in the letters to her mother and the rest of her family, she starts out, My dearest. In her letters home, she does say that she knows that she is extremely lucky that her family let her go. And she thanks them constantly in her letters. First stop, New York. This is where she'll join the ambulance squad that she has signed up with. That's where she gets her passport and all the necessary documentation for the war. And she's also going to see to the safe shipment of all her supplies, which you imagine is tricky when you have a six-month supply of gas in wartime. The truck cost $794 back then, and the gasoline cost $450. The six-month supply of gas and oil was $80 a month, so 80 times six. And... It was rationed to four gallons of oil a month and five gallons of gas a day. 
but her gas was shipped separately, her truck was shipped separately, she was shipped, nothing was on the same boat. And part of that is uh, the submarine attacks that the Germans were doing in the Atlantic Ocean so that not everything would go down. And if gasoline was on, then there would be a massive explosion. We have her passport application and it describes her pretty well. The passport application to leave, you'll see that it says she is 34 years old. She's five foot, four and a half inches tall. She has a high forehead, blue eyes, her nose is straight, her mouth is large, her chin is round, her hair is brown, she has a fair complexion and an oval face. But while she's in New York, it becomes clear very quickly that chaos is the order of the day. Her ambulance squad and the shipping companies and the government agencies issuing the documents and everything, it's a hot mess. The lady in the Bien Entre de Bleu unit that Mott originally signed up for out of Manhattan, New York, she was not at all organized. And here's where our Maud Fitch sets herself apart. <laughs> she is going to get it done. She is going to make it happen. Maud was the only one in a group of 10 who was able to sail on the ship at the date that they were supposed to go because she's the only one who got all of the passport paperwork stuff done. So Maud went by herself. She lands in France and to her dismay, it's as chaotic on the other side of the Atlantic. And for two months, she's waiting for an assignment. Ugh. In that time period where she's just waiting in Paris, she volunteered to help with the refugees. She also did some office work for the Red Cross. And she found out that she had to buy her uniform. It's a pale French blue skirt with shoes and a hat. And she says it's the least practical outfit you could think of for an ambulance driver because it's a skirt. And if you're gonna drive an ambulance back in 1917, you're gonna need to be able to move your legs to shift gears. She's working with the Red Cross kind of like as an office assistant at the office in, in Paris because the Bien Entre de Blues in Paris is just not organized. Uh, come to find out that her gas, the six months of gas that she had ordered and had shipped had arrived and they, the Bien Entre de Blues, was trying to sell it to the Red Cross. Yeah. Oh, she knew the colonel over the Red Cross there, and he had told her that the Paris office was trying to sell the excess gas, and she's like, I paid for that gas. And so he didn't buy the gas from them. So he tells her, they're trying to sell your gasoline, and she has to go and reclaim it. <laughs> they made it so hard to help. Yeah. It was so hard. I think they made it overly hard to help. She she was so disillusioned with the way that the Bien Entre de Bleu was working that she even tried to get hired on by the Red Cross in Paris. And then she somehow was able to get on with the Hackett Lothar unit. Hackett Lothar unit, oh. which was under the supervision of the French army. 
And finally, she's off. May 15th, 1918. Wednesday morn, 7.30. Dearests, I'm so thrilled I can hardly write. At last, really and certainly, I am off for the front in a real unit. We've all left the BEB, in a day's time joined the Hackett Lothar unit and are off on the 8 o'clock train. We expect with time to have our ambulances, but now we are each given one in the unit, two to a car. It is the unit directly under the military, and we move with the army and under a French lieutenant. The thing is by far the most wonderful thing out there. I am the envy of all. I am writing this because they say our mail will take fearfully long from the front. So don't worry, as I shall write constantly, and we shall be well taken care of. Should like to tell you more, but it's late. All my love, darlings, your Maud. What sets World War I apart is that for the whole of the Victorian era, you know, for the whole of the 1800s, industrialized nations like Germany, France, and Britain especially, and a little bit of America, mm-hmm. had kind of been marching around the world with their industrialized weapons, taking over parts of the world that weren't industrialized. Oh, you know, yeah. So the famous quote by Hilaire Belloc, the uh, British soldier, is, uh, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. Mm. And the Maxim gun is a machine gun. Mm. So for the whole of that era of imperialism in the 1800s, it had been machine guns versus, you know, swords. Right. And they had just taken down the whole of Africa right. and they were in Asia and all over the place. And then in World War One, at the beginning of the 20th century, those industrialized nations turn on each other. Mm. And they're using, they think they can use the techniques they used against Africa Right. against each other it's like nobody really stopped to think <laughs> what they is it also they also have. yeah whatever happens that. we have got the maxim gun and they do too <laughs> what's that that's really great yeah how is that gonna pan out so then they just dig trenches for protection right then they're stuck in the trenches and they there's no way out it just becomes this crazy muddy trench warfare where all you do is just gas each other and blast each other with machine guns in no man's land and nothing ever happens. For example, the Battle of the Somme, 1.6 million casualties. And it the actual like border of the Western Front ended up being exactly where it was before they started. It's just so insane. World War One was a very different war with machine guns and cannons and all these other things that can immediately eviscerate a person, just make them into nothing. But she wasn't actually at the front. She was at what she called the back of the front. Mm. She was driving up to the back of the, you know, the warrens of trenches that sometimes stretched on for miles. She drives there to the back of them where she picks up the wounded and then she drives them to hospitals. Mm. She's traveling many, many miles. You know, I never really thought about the practicalities of what it would be to drive an ambulance, but they have all these code names for, like, how wounded the person is in their ambulance. How many can you fit? It depends on if they are capable of sitting or if they're lying down. The men who had been gassed were the worst of all. Maud Fitch, in one of her letters, she mentions that any of the soldiers who had been exposed to gas 
we were not allowed to touch them because even the doctors and nurses who worked on them had to wear masks and gloves with the soldiers that had been affected with gas. They weren't even allowed to let them use the blankets that they had in the back of the ambulance because the gas would stick to the blanket and then if they used that blanket on another wounded then he would be exposed to the gas again. It's just really hard because she, she feels really bad for some of these wounded. They're cold or they just need some kind of comfort but she can't even touch them on the arm or you know just give them a pat. She can just only talk to them and as they're being loaded into the car, if they're the ones on stretchers, their eyes are closed and then some of them, they'll open their eyes real quick and then they'll see that it's a woman and they'll just have profuse thanks and just thanking the woman for being there to drive the ambulance. I think it's kind of like the Florence Nightingale syndrome. Women are comforters, they're nurturers, and Maud Fitch, even though she's doing a man's job driving the ambulance. She's a woman, and so she has that extra comfort and nurturing aspect to share. It's also up to her to maintain her ambulance truck all by herself. If it breaks down, you know, lives will be lost. It's wow. up to her to fix it. They generally worked a 24-hour shift. They had to be able to leave with their ambulance at a moment's notice, so they had to maintain and keep it running and in working order. And She did that all by herself. There's one delightful passage in one of her letters where she says, For three days I've had a leak in my radiator which I didn't dare report for fear of losing out on the work while it was being repaired. I forgot to put oil in it, and it has run like a Rolls Royce for the first time in its miserable existence. <laughs> her letters home really bring her experience vividly to life like the time she had to drive in pitch blackness. She's just driving along and you can't have headlights on and you're driving at night because if you have the headlights, then the enemy will be able to see you and aim for you. She was driving five wounded to the hospital. When the moon was covered with clouds, there was no light and the other person sitting in the front with her had a flashlight. She would scream at her to turn it on just real quick, and they would immediately see a bunch of soldiers or a big tank. And so she'd swerve, and she didn't hit anybody or anything while she was driving those five to the hospital. She named her ambulance Pippa Passes after that because she was able to pass into tiny spaces. She did have a niece with a nickname Pippa, and I wonder if that was her favorite niece. You're not supposed to have favorites, but you always do. Yeah. She, she, she's just amazing. I, I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> the things she did, she would sometimes bribe the sentries, like when she's stuck on a road and she's stuck in this long line, she bribes the sentries with cigarettes. Sometimes her family shared her letter with news reporters. Mm. And then her stories were known all over the West. Miss Maud Fitch, driving ambulance on French Front. 
Many thrilling experiences are related in letters Mr. and Mrs. Walter Fitch have received from Miss Maud Fitch, who for some time has been connected with one of the ambulance units in northern France. Her letters indicate that the pressing need of men on the fighting line has made it necessary for women to replace them in the operation of ambulances. Many hundreds of women are driving these cars of mercy. In that section of the fighting line where Miss Fitch is located, there is but one other American girl doing similar work, all of the others being either English or French. Notwithstanding the very hazardous nature of her duties, the best of luck has attended Miss Fitch, and she is very enthusiastic regarding the work being but a few miles from the heaviest fighting. It is necessary for the ambulance drivers to do so much of their work at night, and to sleep in underground shelters which protect them from the fire of large guns. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Sally Ride said, you cannot be what you cannot see. And Girls Can Crate believes that the more girls learn about real women who did fearless things and made the world better, it will inspire them to believe in themselves and their own potential to make the world better too. Every crate features an inspiring woman, her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, and everything you need to complete two to three STEAM activities, crafts, experiments, and more. There's even a mini crate for families that are very busy or looking for an even more affordable option. Use the coupon code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate. Go to girlscancrate.com. Registration is now open on What's-Your-Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. A hellish scene from the Western Front. Maud Fitch is performing gallant work in what she describes as miles and miles of devastated country that looks like the picture of Dante's Inferno. Lost souls peer out of trees twisted about in leafless agony. Dead horses scatter the devastated land. Still, Maud Fitch steers her ambulance across the bleak landscape, overcoming horrifying and unexpected obstacles. A cowgirl at home, Miss Fitch tells us that her experience tracking and trailing out west has helped her find her way many times amongst the devastation. On September 2nd, her hind wheels slipped into a shell hole, stalling her motor right in the pool of blood where three horses had been killed. A bomb had fallen on a soup kitchen wagon delivering food the night before. Imagine her horror. The engine was so hot that Maud Fitch had to slide around in the blood for fully five minutes before pushing the ambulance free. I wonder if she experienced any PTSD. She witnessed some of the bleakest that humanity has to offer. And a period of about 72 hours, starting on June 9th, pushed her to the breaking point. She starts off, Dearest, we've moved about so that I had none of your dear longed for letters for a week. Perhaps it's not a week, as I've less idea of time now than ever. I'll go back to June 9th now, as since then it's been fairly hectic from a matter principally of lack of sleep and food. 
On that day at noon, I went on my 24-hour duty evacuating a hospital in front of the advancing Huns. Got back the next day at 2, having lunched and dined and breakfasted on bread and jam. Worked on my car until dinner, rushed in to wash at the first gong, and at the second, just as I was about to sit at the table, three of us got rushed off again in our cars on an emergency call. I took the worst blesses, which means wounded, the worst blesses I ever have had and ever hope to have again on to another hospital about 20 kilometers off. I can't even think of the trip it's going was so ghastly. But coming back, I lost my way, and the excitement of that in the dark set my mind going again from its utter state of lassitude. I asked two French officers at, and then the letter's been censored, because there's just a blank line, because you can't tell where you are. I asked two French officers at, blank line, where I was, and one said his bureau was back in a village where I could get on the right road so that he would go along with me. He invited me into his bureau to get directions and would have been amused at the scene. Three dogs on his bed who sprang at me at once and five other officers scrambling after them. Then the seven of us peering over a road map, quite indistinct in the sputtering flare of only one little candle. I got going finally to experience the most wonderful scene on the road, retreat. Most orderly and so silently, the men and horses marched along that congested road. It seemed unreal, ghostly. Great, tremendous guns would loom up suddenly alongside of me, then a team of white oxen carrying the household goods of some refugee. More cannon, more men in a never-ending line, clean back to the chateau I was helping to evacuate. She goes on and she talks more about how she hasn't had enough sleep and then she gets back to the chateau and then they have to be evacuated, which means she's got to pack all of her stuff and then the other girls who are out taking ambulance cases. So she packs her stuff and their stuff and they get it all down in the car and, and then they go and then they're sent back. They're like, false alarm. <laughs> and she, she put in five exclamation points. It says, it was not so exciting at the hospital as they kept us waiting until about nine when Lothar again changed her changeable mind and we were ordered back again. Five exclamation points. <laughs> Did you ever hear of anything so silly or a night so spent futilely? We can't be sure what operation was going on here because her letters were censored, as you right. heard there with Valerie reading it. You know, anytime she mentioned a location, they would literally black it black out it or out. cut it out of her letter. But I can say that June 9th was the beginning of Germany's fourth and final offensive. It was sort of their all or nothing gamble. Mm. And at first they were winning. But then the French and American forces successfully pushed them back. So maybe what Maud Fitch experienced as a silly waste of energy was actually a, an emergency evacuation that was able to be miraculously reversed mm. when the French and Americans were victorious. Wow. But it didn't end there. 
She was now multiple days without sleep and still driving across dangerous terrain. At 12 o'clock, I was again on 24-hour duty. This time, I had to take my blesses over a fearful road to blank line, 47 kilometers. After leaving the hospital, I stopped at a little shop and had my dinner. Two cups of delicious chocolate at 3 o'clock. I also did some longed-for shopping of monkey wrenches, etc. As the shops have been closed in blank line for a long time, I was cleaning a spark plug in front of the hotel, who should yell out of her bedroom window at me, but Sarah Cunningham. So she had met Sarah while she was waiting to go in New York, and Sarah was going to be a nurse. Then they were separated when they got to France. Sarah just looks out the window and happens to see her and yells down at her, and they catch up and they they talk together. They're reunited, but then she has to go right back on duty without any sleep. She goes back on duty, and so she's driving three couches, which are wounded soldiers that can't sit. So she's got three wounded soldiers on, like, stretchers in the back of her ambulance, and then one other who's just sitting. The blessed got delirious and screamed and groaned and moaned until I thought I should lose my little remaining brain power. I had to go the whole distance in bottom gear, and it took me five hours because she couldn't shift gears because of all the potholes to go faster because the wounded who are on stretchers are more serious than the wounded who can sit. So I had to go the whole distance on bottom gear and it took me five hours. And what was the worst of all, I found myself going to sleep at the wheel, absolutely losing consciousness for whole seconds at a time so that three times I had to get out and wash my face in the wet grass. Then I had the most extraordinary hallucinations, such as an immense hand that reached out from a passing car, and I found myself lurching sideways so as not to hit its finger. Then another one, a man floated ahead of me in a horizontal position face down so that this made me laugh and I got out again and washed my face. Psychologically, I should like to know what was wrong with me that night. Could I really have been dreaming with my eyes open? As a climax, while I waited for about 50 camions to pass me, one lurched out and caught my front wheel. And if the traffic man hadn't shouted at the top of his lungs, he would have dragged me over and goodbye blesses. I could have jumped easily. A man with a pipe thing helped me straighten it enough to get on, and I couldn't even thank him. I was so afraid my voice would tremble, and imagine a driver in the war zone near to tears. After getting on, I realized the accident was really heaven sent as it woke me up completely, or I think something worse and of my own doing would have happened. I got in at 5.30, dumped the blesses, and went to the hotel where after pulling off my belt and tunic and shoes, I crawled into bed with Sarah. And I assure you, no more surprised person breathed than she when she woke up as I crawled in, unable to give her any explanation as I was off in a second. For her actions during that period, 
for her guts and her sheer grit. She was awarded the French Cross. Wow. She starts out, Dearests, prepare yourselves for a fearful shock. This afternoon, I was presented with the Croix de Guerre. Think of the stunning luck of it, and all for the perfectly foolish little trip to Cleroy that I described to you in my last letter. Miss Maud Fitch of Eureka awarded the French Cross. Miss Maud Fitch of Eureka has the honor of receiving the signal distinction from the French government for gallantry and bravery at the front. Maud Fitch and the women in her ambulance unit have performed the work of men. They have fulfilled their dangerous duties unflinchingly, taking their turns each night to transport the wounded to hospitals. They have sometimes kept at it for 30 hours at a stretch. Fearless under fire. They have stayed by their ambulances when they were damaged, made repairs themselves, and showed true courage. They have all had narrow escapes and have well won the honor of the French Cross. So eventually by the end of 1918, we've had, Europe has had four years of the horrors of this. They're losing a generation of men. Then the flu hits. That flu mm, pandemic in right. 1918. I'm sure everybody's seen Downton Abbey. The Spanish influenza. Is... Exactly. And that killed more soldiers than the war did. Yeah. And they were all just dying like flies. And that's when people finally said, enough is enough. And it was every country, people in every country, except maybe America, mm-hmm. saying, that's it. It's We're over. It's done. And the German government was about to collapse There were even reports of entire German Navy ships of men who refused to fight. They were ordered to go and meet this British fleet and fight, and they just said, no, we're not doing it. Disease, disenchantment with government, and then everybody agreed, this must stop. So I I have never thought about that before. I've heard of the armistice, but it never occurred to me. So that means nobody won World War I? Yeah, well... In the peace treaty after the fact, 100% of the blame was placed on Germany. Right. They had to pay the war reparations, the cost of the war, for all the allies. They just said, you Mm. must foot the bill for everything, which completely tanked and destroyed Germany's government. Which is why. Which is why World War II. Yeah. Yeah. The rise of Hitler. So to me, it's a really significant historical anniversary, the end of World War I, because it's to me, it's a it's a collective action by the masses saying, we're not going to do this anymore. This war is over. Yeah. The cool thing is that around the world, people will be marking the 100th anniversary of the armistice this November 11th at 11 o'clock because they agreed on the armistice. They actually set the exact date in the exact time, 11, 11 at 11 o'clock. Hmm. When the clock struck, that's it. The war is over. And, you know, parades and celebrations erupted all over the world. So the world, again, is going to be commemorating the 100th anniversary on 11-11 at 11 o'clock. So there's lots of ways that people can participate all around the world, no matter where they are. There's an app you can download for cool. it that rings the bells of peace at 11 o'clock. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, there's going to be local events everywhere. Just Google and find a local event where you are. So it's 11 o'clock local time. So there's going to be like this wave oh, of it just moves. like, you know, bell ringing that moves all around the world. 11 o'clock. Cool. Yeah, should be cool. 
she, she she was just amazing and I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> she returned to Eureka, to the middle of nowhere, to live out the rest of her long life. And to me, it seems like she carried that fire, that forceful will to the end. She was diagnosed with cancer and the doctor had given a prescription and told her son Paul that she needed to take it. And she's like, I've lived long enough. I want you to tear this up in front of my eyes. Otherwise, I'm going to be thinking you're going to be slipping it into my food and my drink for the rest of my life. So he tore up the prescription for whatever it was for in, in front of her. And she died in 1973. She was buried in Eureka. I mean, she's just amazing. If you'd like to read or teach more about Maud Fitch, you can find a lesson plan for elementary and junior high students created by Valerie Jacobson on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. And thanks to Valerie Jacobson for unearthing Maud Fitch's story in the first place. Our newsreels were read by James Henderson. The period music we used from antique recordings can be found on albums you can listen to for free via the link in our website. And additional music was provided by Parvus Decree and Ars Soner. Special shout out to Christina Barnsdale, Jeremy Root, and Leanne Christiansen, and all our patrons. You can support the podcast for a buck a month and make more episodes happen by clicking donate on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of pictures each week. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith, and What's Her Name is produced by Katie Nelson and Olivia Mickle. Thank you for listening. <laughs>